morning. Here we are, another Sunday morning, gathered together in the name of Jesus. Amen? Let's, let's pray to that Jesus right now. Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ our Lord, we exalt you as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who, who made all things and made all things for yourself. Lord, we, we exalt you as the one who has turned our hearts from seeking to make life about us to make it about you, to return us to that, to that idea that we exist for you. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. It's not because we were the sharpest tool in the shed. That's because you opened our eyes. Would you continue to open our eyes, Lord, as we turn to your word now? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might know you more and love you more through your word? We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, thank you all for joining us on this most sacred day of the American calendar, <laughs> Super Bowl Sunday, which to me means that we're only two months away from the start of the baseball season, so that's <laughs> where I stand. But what we're going to do this morning, guys, we're going to be continuing our series on men and women as image bearers of God. This is, I think, week four or five of this series. And what we're going to do this morning is focus on the idea of what does it look like to be single and flourishing? That's been one of our key words throughout this whole series. What does it mean as men and women to cause one another to flourish? Not to seek to dominate and control each other, but that idea of flourishing, to bring out the God-given potential in one another in a way that contributes not just to the flourishing of individuals, but of humanity and of creation as a whole. And this morning, we're going to focus in on this idea of what does this idea of flourishing look like as single folks? Now, I'll tell you this right from the outset. This has been a, a very intimidating topic to prepare to speak on because I can't speak from much personal experience. My wife and I met when we were in college, and we got married at the ripe old age of 22, so I spent about that much of my adult life single. So I'm not up here this morning to share all these stories of, of how I sought to flourish as a single person, but what I have been doing over the last several weeks is spending a lot of time seeking to understand what God's Word says about singleness and how that contributes to human flourishing. And I've also gotten to spend a lot of time over the last couple of weeks with some really incredible single men and women that we have here in this church. And I just want to say thank you to each one of you that I got a chance to talk with for, for sharing your insights and even your struggles and the joys that you find in your singleness. And my prayer this morning is that I truly am able to encourage you to flourish in your singleness. But as we talk about singleness this morning, for those of you who are married, kind of like Terry said to the single folks last week, I hope you don't tune me out this morning because... Whether you're married or single, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to think carefully about what the Bible says about both of those ideas. The truth is, we all start out life single, and most of us will end our lives single. And so therefore, as a local church, we need both flourishing marriages and flourishing singleness if we are to display the gospel fully and faithfully as God would have us do it. 
If I can boil down what I hope to do this morning is to show how married people need to understand how to help single people flourish and single people need to understand how to help married people flourish. I also think it's strategic that our discussion of singleness is sandwiched between last week when Terry talked about marriage and next week when Terry's going to talk about parenting. It makes a lot of sense to put singleness right in the middle because even though we start out life single, when you look at the flow of the biblical story, right from creation, we see marriage between a man and a woman put forward as normative for humanity. It's really like you really don't hear much about singleness throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And any time that it comes up, it's not usually treated as a good thing. It's only once Jesus comes onto the scene that singleness is not only elevated to a level of legitimacy, but even a place of advantage and blessing within this new covenant community that Jesus established. And that, that new covenant understanding of marriage and singleness, of of what it means to be a part of the people of God and even what it means to grow, to multiply the people of God, as we draw our attention to that, it has profound implications for how we think about parenting. How we think about why we choose to have children. What is it that we should seek to do with the children that God gives us? And even most specifically, what is it that we're going to teach our children to aim for? What goals are we going to put before them as they begin to move toward adulthood themselves? So I would say to you, regardless of whatever life situation you find yourself in at the moment, whether you're married or single, whether you're a parent or you're a married or single parent, whether you're widowed, divorced, a high schooler, whatever it is, you need to hear what God's word says this morning. And I'm not going to have time to speak to each of those different life situations directly. But my hope is by taking a step back and looking at marriage and singleness in the story of God, that it will help us all to begin to orient ourselves somewhere in that story. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's, there's kind of two main parts to what I want to do this morning. Number one is to tell the story of singleness as it develops through the biblical story. And then second, the the second part of it is more just then to encourage and instruct us as a body, both as single people within our body in how to flourish in singleness, and also to us as an entire body for how we can seek to help single people flourish. Does that make sense? So so stay with me during this first part. It's going to get a little bit technical, but we need to understand how singleness fits into the purpose of God in order to know how to encourage each other in it. Does that make sense? So as we go, just for further study, for further thought, I just want to recommend two resources to you that were really helpful to me in this process. Number one is a book by a guy named Barry Danilak. It's called Redeeming Singleness, and he does a phenomenal job of tracing singleness through the biblical story. Um, It it can get pretty detailed, and it's, it's a little bit long. So I would say that if you're, um, if you want just something that's more of a starter, as strange as this sounds, pick up this book on marriage by John Piper. In this book, This Momentary Marriage by John Piper, this is one of my favorite books on marriage. This is a go-to for my wife and I when we do premarital counseling. But in a book on marriage, he spends two chapters unpacking singleness. And he takes what Danilak does in about 200 pages, and in about 20 pages, he summarizes some of the main thoughts. So that's, uh, that's for you for further study. 
But as we get into it, let me, let me start by talking about this, because I think the, the, the discussions of marriage and singleness have to go hand in hand. And a helpful way for us to orient ourselves is to think about why it is that most Christians in America pursue marriage. And I kind of boiled it down. There's probably many more you could add to this, but three main ideas. Number one, you're looking for companionship. You're looking for that soulmate, that one to complete you. Number two, it's, it's because we see scripturally that it's, it's really the only proper realm for sexual activity. And then number three, usually as a byproduct of number two, have children. Right? At least for, for guys, oftentimes that's the way that we think about it. Now, I would say to you that each one of those things up there, those are not bad desires. Those are good desires. As a matter of fact, I would say those are the same main reasons why Old Testament Israelites chose to marry. But they're a little bit inverted. That idea of, of getting married for the sake of companionship, we see that in the Bible, but it, it really comes in later. It's not until we get to the wisdom literature, like in Song of Solomon or the book of Proverbs, that we start to see the joy and companionship of marriage. What's really at the forefront in Old Testament is this. The purpose of marriage is to have children. This was by far the most important reason why people got married in the Old Testament. Because children were seen as a sign of God's blessing on your life. Because children would inherit your, your share of the promised land after you. And because children, especially sons, would carry on your name after you died. That's priority one in the Old Testament. Yes, sex, proper sexual fulfillment, but I mean, and even that idea of companionship, okay, think about this. Most of those marriages were arranged between the groom and the father of the bride. So companionship, there wasn't even really much opportunity for that. Companionship was something you sought to build once you were married, not before you got into it. And this Old Testament focus on having children as the main purpose for marriage is really important because throughout this series, we've been talking about what it looks like for men and women to cause each other to flourish as individuals. But this stress throughout the Old Testament on having children reminds us that God's purpose isn't just for individuals to flourish, but for humanity to flourish. Does that make sense? Even in the plan of redemption, God is not only seeking to redeem individuals for himself, but a people to belong to him. So the question that we're really going to, the big picture question we're going to look at today is this. What does it look like in singleness, to cause the people of God to flourish. Not just individuals, but cause... How, how do you make the family of God grow? That's the big picture question we're going to look at today. As we look throughout the scripture, the, you see so quickly how the, the idea of descendants is, is central. I mean, Todd talked about this in our first week, how Genesis 1, God creates the man and the woman, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Get married, make babies, grow the family. Even in Genesis 3, after they disobey God, God makes that promise that he will send a descendant from Adam and Eve who will crush the head of the serpent. So still, have descendants because that's the, the channel through which God is going to bring salvation. By the time we get to Genesis 12 and God calls Abraham, and he promises to bless him, even though he's 100, his wife is 90. He says, I'm not only going to give you a son, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And from that great nation that I make out of you, I will bring blessing to all nations. 
descendants are so important because all of God's promises to redeem humanity from sin and death hang on Abraham and his descendants. Therefore, as an Israelite in the Old Testament, one of the main purposes for your life was to get married and have children because that's how you grow the family of God. When an Israelite couple would have a son or daughter, they would be very literally a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah, a son or daughter of the covenant. They would inherit the covenant that God made with the people at Mount Sinai. They would inherit the promised land. They would inherit God's promise to bless all nations. And in fact, throughout the Old Testament, one of the chief ways that God promises to bless Israel for their obedience to the covenant is through giving them children. Check this one out. Deuteronomy chapter 7. God says this to the people, or Moses says this on behalf of God. He says, You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, children, and the fruit of your ground, your grain, your wine. There's just going to be so much fruitfulness. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or even among your livestock. As you obey me, I will pour out my blessings through the fruit of the womb and there will be no barrenness. But on the other hand, as we look at the end of Deuteronomy, we see that just as God promised to bless them with the fruit of the womb, if they disobeyed the covenant, one of the ways that God promised to curse them was by taking away the fruit of the womb. There would be barrenness, barrenness, the loss of children. Look at verse 15. He says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord or be careful to do all his commandments, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb. Look at how he ends in verse 62. He says, whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. As a matter of fact, as we move through the Old Testament, there's a phrase that comes up. The idea of, of, of someone having their name cut off or blotted out from Israel, which is really just a shorthanded way of saying that a man died without a son to carry on his name, and his son was blotted out and cut off. To be single, to be barren, to be unable to have children was seen as a sign that you were under God's curse and at risk of having your name cut off from Israel. This is why marriage was pretty much the universal practice for Israel. We don't have a single record in the Old Testament of anyone willingly choosing singleness. As a matter of fact, throughout Jewish history, many rabbis have taught that marriage is a commandment. It's mandatory for that very reason. So, to sum all that up, here's the point. Marriage and children equals blessing from God. Singleness and barrenness equals that you're under God's curse. That make sense? 
That kind of, that, that, that those themes continue pretty uniformly until all of a sudden, this man Isaiah comes on the scene. And in Isaiah chapter 53, he begins talking about this man who from all outward indications seems to be clearly under God's curse. Look what it says. He speaks about this one that he identifies as the servant. He says that this man was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, but we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. This man seems clearly to be under God's curse, but in the very next part, he makes it clear that the suffering of this servant isn't because of his own disobedience, but for the sake of the people of Israel. He says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. At the very end, he says, we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Continues in verse 7, and he says this, this man was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Many scholars look at that verse and see especially these ideas of speaking of this man's generation and him being cut off means this is talking about someone who died without descendants. One scholar, he put it this way. He said that the idea is that this servant was left without children in a culture where to die childless was to have lived an utterly futile existence. He's put to death unjustly, and his name is cut off because he has no generation. He has no descendants to continue after him. But look at verse 10, the second one up here. Why is all this happening to this man? Look what it says. It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. After this man suffers and died and is buried, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Wait, you mean this man is going to come back to life and have children? How is that possible? In the very next chapter, we get another clue. Look at Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. He says this, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. See that verse? You notice this one who's said to have more children by the end of it, it never says that her barrenness is taken away. It never even says that she gets married. It doesn't say that the one who has not been in labor is going to get pregnant and go into labor, but that even though she is still barren and seemingly unmarried, she will have more children than the one who is married. How is that possible? What is it about the death of this servant and his resurrection that makes it possible to have children, to grow the family of God, even when you are barren or unmarried? 
Well, it starts to come into focus about 700 years later when this suffering servant arrives on the scene. Here's how the Apostle John talked about it in John chapter 1. He speaks of this one, this one we know as Jesus, as the Word who was with God and was God and made everything. And then in John 1 verse 10, he says this. He says that this one was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is huge. This is like a massive tectonic shift in the entire biblical story. What this passage tells us is that from the moment that Jesus arrives on the scene, the people of God will no longer be defined as a specific ethnic group. And they will no longer be grown through having just physical descendants, but through this much more mysterious process of being born of God, of of being given the rights as children of God, this this idea of adoption or rebirth into God's family. This is how God's family is grown now. Jesus makes it even clearer two chapters later in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. Here's what he says to him. Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Is he supposed to enter into his mother's womb a second time to be born? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is his spirit. He says, this is a different kind of birth that we're talking about here. It's not natural birth of flesh, but spiritual birth. This is a supernatural work done by the, the very Holy Spirit himself. But how does he do that? How does the Holy Spirit cause this new spiritual birth to take place? The Apostle Peter makes it really clear for us in 1 Peter 1. When he says this about this new birth, he says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, get it, is the good news that was preached to you. Okay, that was a lot. Let me try to pull all the pieces of that puzzle together and make it really clear what what we're seeing as we go through the biblical story. Based upon what Peter tells us here is that as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is preached, the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of some who hear it so that they believe, that they are given new hearts and they believe and they respond in faith. And as as John 1 said, Those who believe in Jesus' name are given the full rights and privileges as sons of God. This is how the people of God are grown now that Jesus has come. Not through physical birth, but through spiritual rebirth through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now, 
whether you are Jew or Gentile, male or female, old or young, married, single, widowed, divorced, if you have heard the good news of Jesus Christ and believed, you have been given the full rights and privileges as a son or daughter of God. Amen? And you have also been given the blessed duty of growing this family through sharing the gospel. That's, that's how the barren woman that we just looked at in Isaiah 54, that's how she's able to have more children than the married woman. Through the sharing of the gospel, calling people to believe, and then training up those who do believe to make disciples as well. The family of God is grown through the making of disciples. See, it's interesting because as much in the Old Testament as we see this language that children are a blessing from the Lord, Strangely, we don't see that same blessing language used of children in the New Covenant. doesn't mean they're not a blessing from the Lord. But what we find instead of commands to be fruitful and multiply is Jesus in Matthew 28 saying, make disciples of all nations. Instead of hearing that God blessed his people through giving them the fruit of the womb... We read in the book of Acts how God blessed his people by adding to the number of those who believed, both men and women. That's how this family grows. The choice to remain single or to get married, even the choice to have children or not once you're married, is completely reframed in light of this commission from Jesus Christ to make disciples. If you choose to get married... Marriage is a commitment to mutual discipleship. If you have children, your goal is to seek to make disciples of them. Not force them to be disciples. Not assume that they already are disciples. But on an ongoing basis to teach them about Jesus Christ. To teach them about their identity as image bearers of God who are in need of reconciliation. And then to pray and pray, and pray, and pray that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes and change their hearts and give them that new birth. In short, it's really not that different from the way that we make disciples of anyone else. Do you see that? So here's my point. If you are single in here, listen closely to what I have to say. Because Jesus Christ has come and he's beaten death, and he's given us new birth by the Spirit. If you are single, you are not incomplete. You are not incomplete. You are not deficient. You are not inferior. You are not stuck in the waiting room waiting for adult life to begin. As a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are single, you already have everything that you need to be a fruitful, flourishing disciple who makes disciples. Paul would argue that you're actually in an even better position than those of us who are married to make disciples. You see, we've got to get the Tom Cruise line out of our heads. You do not need a spouse to complete you. You do not need children to complete you. We stand complete in Christ. And if you find your completeness in Christ, then whether you're married or single, you can now devote yourself to love and serve others 
out of that completeness in Christ. Because lest we forget, our Lord Jesus Christ never got married. He never had children. Yet he is the most complete, most fully realized human being who ever lived. That's who we follow. Never forget, we follow a single celibate man who will one day come back for his bride. The Apostle Paul never married. He never had biological children. But he actually believed that his singleness made him more fruitful, more able to make disciples and to grow the people of God. That's why when you read his letters in the New Testament, they're so full of family language. He's always calling these churches his children, his brothers, his sisters. He refers to himself often as their father in the faith. At one time in 1 Thessalonians, he even describes himself as a nursing mother caring for infants. And I don't think Paul was only speaking metaphorically. He actually believed that the followers of Jesus were his family. Paul understood that the new covenant family of God is an eternal family that is deeper and more lasting than blood family. Paul didn't give up marriage and, child and, and having children in order to live as a perpetual bachelor. As a matter of fact, Paul was more of a family man than that Duggar guy on TV that's got like 19 kids. His whole life was devoted to the care and nurture of God's people. His entire life as a single celibate man was devoted to growing the family of God. But here's the thing, you guys. I don't think we actually believe that. I don't think we actually believe that singleness is just as legitimate as marriage and even more advantageous for making disciples. I read a quote one guy had, uh, said this week that I, I, I loved it, kind of hurt in a good way. He said, if Jesus walked into most churches in America on a Sunday morning, he would be quickly ushered over into the singles ministry during second service because we wouldn't know what else to do with him. Ouch! Our actions betray that we still see singleness as an inferior state, as a waiting room of sorts. Let me prove it to you. For those of you in here who are married, when you meet someone in our church who is single, and as you get to know them, you find them to be engaging, attractive, serious about the Lord and loving others, what's the first thought that pops in your mind? Why aren't they married? Followed second, very closely by a second thought. Do I know anyone I could set them up with? <laughs> right? Our thinking, our default idea of what it means to help single people flourish is to find them a spouse, to fill up what we see as lacking in their life. Our actions betray that either consciously or unconsciously, we see them as missing something that they need to be a fully realized follower of Jesus. If that's not what it means to help single people flourish, to just try to set them up with someone, what does it look like to seek to help single people flourish in their singleness? That's a whole different story. But I think that's the story that we as a church need to learn how to tell. I think this is one of the biggest areas that we, Cornerstone, need to grow as a church. I know it's one of the biggest areas where I need to grow. 
gosh, there's so many more messages that I could give in trying to unpack this, and many of you guys could give. But as I've been studying Scripture, let me, in our last couple minutes together, if I can, just briefly throw a couple targets out there for ways that we can continue to grow and progress in our church being a place where single people can flourish. I'm going to share three ideas with you that that all come from what is the longest and most detailed explanation of marriage and singleness in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7. Now, three years ago in 2014, we spent several weeks, several weeks, going through this chapter. And so I can't get into nearly as much detail, but I would encourage you, all those messages are online. Feel free to go back and take a look at those. But let me throw out three ideas to shape our understanding of what does it mean to flourish in singleness. I want to talk about the grace for singleness, the choice of singleness, and the advantage of singleness. And I'll do this briefly, I promise. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, Paul starts out, or not starts out, it's in the middle, but I'll just start here. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one from another. One of another. If you remember back three years ago, if you were here, as we talked through this idea of gifts in the book of 1 Corinthians, Todd did a great job explaining for us that this word gift really, it doesn't help us out a whole lot. We think of something that's just like this static thing that's given to us and dropped into our laps. But really what this idea of gift, a better way to understand it is this. Each one has his own grace-empowered role from God. The word there is charismata. It's, it's the, the way that God's grace works in you to work through you to be a blessing to others in that role. He says each person has their own role from God and the grace to enable them to play that role. To the married, there is grace. Or to married, unmarried and widows, he says, there is grace that, that is good for them to remain single. Verse 10, to the married... The grace to play that role is that they should not separate. If I could sum it up, it's this. The grace to play the role, whether you are single or married currently, is a grace to remain. Stay where you are. That's one of Paul's main emphasis in these chapters. Wherever you were when God called you, there seek to remain with the Lord. So the grace, the gift, if you will, the grace empowerment for singleness is to remain there. The way that God empowers married people is similarly to remain in their marriage. But as he says there, he says in verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. In many ways, this is talking about if you cannot control your sexual desire, you should seek to get married. So the grace for singleness is not only the grace to remain in singleness, but it's also the grace to abstain in your singleness, to live a celibate life. Not that you are devoid of sexual desire, but it is the gracious empowerment from God to control and submit your desire to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in order instead to devote yourself to love and serve others. And I would say to you, this is an aspect of the gospel that our world desperately needs to see from followers of Jesus one of the most unentertainable concepts in our world today is the, that the idea that an adult can be a fully realized human being and be celibate. I think this idea really underlines so much of the debate going on about sex and sexuality in our culture. The belief 
oftentimes it's just accepted as a given, is that to be a fully realized human being means that you must express your sexual desire through sexual acts, either by yourself or with someone else. It is just not thought possible that you can suppress what is seen as a whole aspect of your humanity without in some way violating who you are. And so therefore, people ought to be free to express their sexuality through sexual acts in whatever way they choose. And this is why our world and even our church, we are desperate to see grace-empowered single people live celibate, holy lives as followers of Jesus. By the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't believe any other way, a person can live a fully realized, joyful, human existence, not devoid of sexual desire, but ongoingly submitting that desire to the God who created sexuality in the first place and understands how he intended it to be used. I know some of you right now, if you're single in here, are going, yeah, yeah, that that rolls real easy off of your tongue because you're married. Yeah, it it is pretty easy for me to say, but I'm, I'm not the one who said it. I'm relaying the words of the Apostle Paul, the single, joyful, celibate, flourishing man said. And that man, that man is the one who invites you to live a celibate, single life before the Lord. He actually believed that it was advantageous, that it made him better able to put the gospel on display. So there is grace to remain in singleness and grace to remain in marriage. But we see as we move through this chapter, there's also a particular choice given to single people that's not given to married people in the same way. Look at the way Paul says this in verse 24. He says, So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. He says, Concerning the betrothed, or those like in, that are committed to be getting married but aren't married yet, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Right? There's a choice given to single people here that's not necessarily given to married people. As you move through 1 Corinthians 7, you see the choice given to married people is to Remain faithful to that covenant until your spouse dies or if you're married to an unbeliever and they want out, you can let them go. Otherwise, the choice is be faithful to the covenant. For single people, on the other hand, even in seeking to live faithfully as a single person, there is the choice that is ongoingly extended throughout this chapter that you can get married if you want to. Whether down the road or in the immediate future or maybe one day before you die, you have that option. It remains on the table. He says, you can choose to remain in your singleness or you can choose to get married. It's no sin. You can get choose to, let me be specific. You can choose to be married to, an, uh, to a believer of the opposite sex. That is no sin. Singleness is not a waiting room, but it's not necessarily a life sentence either. And sometimes when we get hung up on this idea of the gift of singleness 
as this thing that we're given, it can almost bring with it the idea of this must be for the rest of my life. Because if later I try to return the gift, I'm somehow like, I'm, I'm, I'm compromising or maybe I'm, I'm cheating on the gift that God gave me. But that's not necessary. Marriage remains an option on the table, even if you never make use of that option. And Paul would say that there's actually very good reason not to make use of that option. And that's why the last thing I want to talk about, the advantage of singleness. Look what he says here in the next part of it. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He says, there is an advantage in singleness because your interests aren't as divided. I swear, this this reality has come home to me in a whole new way as I've been studying for this. This has taken a lot of time and effort because I was having to blaze new trails in my own understanding to wrap my head around so much of this in the middle of many other responsibilities and a wife and four young kids. And I started to go, gosh, how do I do it all? Oh, maybe that's what Paul talks about when he says that the single person is able to be less divided in their interests and devote themselves to the Lord. I felt this week, and believe me, I love my wife dearly. I love my kids, but it is limiting. It means that at the start of every week, a huge chunk of your time and energy and emotion is already committed and needs to be committed. You are covenantally committed to that family. But for those who do not have that covenant commitment to a wife and to children, you have the opportunity to live a less distracted life. Now, unfortunately, what we often do with this is those of us who are married go, oh, you're single? You must have so much time. You can be involved in all these church activities, and soon sometimes that's what we're guilty of as a church staff. Is a, oh, single people, you could like, like help out with this event. You can cook the food for this one, and, and we want to get you busy with stuff. I talked with one young lady this week who said that's one of the most unhelpful things to hear from married people in the church. She goes, do you understand that I live in Southern California? I work three jobs to make ends meet in Southern California. Not only that, she says, as I look at married couples, all their life decisions and what to do, those decisions are shared. The weight is distributed. I have to make many of those same decisions, and it's all on me. I don't often feel so free and flexible to just up and do stuff. You may have certain burdens that come with making ends meet for yourself, but there is, but you do have an advantage, I would say, as a single person. Not just to get more involved with church activities. Not just to keep your options open in order, in case a better option comes along. And I don't just mean dating-wise. I just mean like in general. Oh, yeah, community group. I could do that. But if the guys are all playing video games for four hours that night, I'll do that. I'm just cherry-picking an example. Don't take offense to that. But the point is not that you get to keep your options open waiting for something better to come along. The point is also not that you get to immerse yourself so fully in a career that you find your identity there instead of in a spouse. 
The point is, you have an advantage as a single person for your new birth privilege of making disciples. You are able to live more simply, not more isolated, but more simply in order to devote yourself to growing this family. There are new frontiers for the gospel, both here in our area and also in some of the most remote parts of the earth, for which single men and women are much better suited than a married couple with a bunch of young kids. But so often, the marriage ideal becomes such that, oh, you're going to go on the mission field? You've got to be married to do that. And it's like, man, we're missing some of our best assets, those who could make the best inroads. I mean, think about this. Think about Paul and his ministry, in his singleness, his ability to travel the Mediterranean world and start new works and plant churches. Have you ever thought that most of the churches that we read about in the New Testament were most likely planted by single men? And then the care of that church was entrusted to elders who were most likely married and planted and established long-term in that city. But that model allowed then, once that church was stable, for Paul and his associates to move on and start new works. I don't think Paul could have done that with a family in tow. His singleness made him more fruitful. So I'd say this to you. As a single person in our church, you are free not from commitment, but for commitment to Christ and his church. As a single person, you are free not from honest, open relationships, but for honest, open relationships. And not just with other singles. Not just with other singles. Think about this. Man, I'm all for single people getting together to encourage each other and study God's word and pray that they would be faithful in their singleness, but... When all that you do and all that sometimes we know how to help you do is just gather together with other single people, that never helps us see how we need you because we keep you in this little corner. So I would say married folks in here, regardless of whether you're young or old or in between, invite single people into your life. Invite them into your family life. Get to know them and care about them. Don't just host a dinner for them. Let them come over when you're not ready to host. Let them see real life. Let them speak grace into your real life. And then do the same with them. Let me close with this thought. I believe singleness may be our greatest untapped resource as a church. And in fact, I think in some ways, it's an untapped resource because we don't have a lot of recent examples of what this looks like for singleness to flourish in the church. 2017 is the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. Did you know that? 500 years ago. One of the greatest gifts that we got from the Protestant Reformation was the recovery of the glory of marriage of the the ability for marriage to put the gospel on display. The reformers emerged out of centuries in which marriage was seen as a necessary evil. What they would say, a, a short period of joy followed by a lifetime of misery. And what the reformers did was they re-exalted and says, no, look, marriage exists, Ephesians 5, to put the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church on display to be a living, breathing parable of God's love for his church. And I would say this, Now living 500 years later, I think we are in need of just such a reformation in our view of singleness. 
We need to recapture the idea, the biblical idea of the grace and the choice and the advantage of singleness to cause God's people to flourish. We need to re-exalt and re-exemplify, put them up as examples, those who choose to forego the parable of marriage in order to live fully for the reality, to testify to the sufficiency of Christ through their lives. There were a lot of times, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. There was a lot of times as I was prepping for this message when my thoughts would go back to um, that famous speech that, that John F. Kennedy gave in 1962 when he, when he said, we choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon by the end of this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, because they will test us. And it's crazy to think, in 1962, there were so many parts of the lunar landing missions that we didn't know how to do yet. There, were, there was technology that hadn't been invented yet. But from the time that JFK put that target on the wall, it was less than seven years before the eagle lands and Neil takes his giant leap for mankind. That speech lit a fire and people rallied and made it a reality. And I'm not in any way claiming to do something on par with that, but I do feel in a similar place this morning. I feel like this vision of singleness that I've been grasping at and trying to communicate to you this morning It's something that we can see in the pages of Scripture, but we've yet to touch down and land there and get a chance to walk around on it. But let's do it. Let's shoot for the moon. Like, seriously, let's let's seek to be a church in which single people flourish, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Let's seek to be a church where where single people are able to flourish in their singleness and even lead us in their singleness and who are then launched out to make disciples in their singleness. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your grace. Lord, I know this has been some heavy lifting. We, we uh, had a big meal this morning. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to digest it appropriately. I pray that as we think through this, would you, even for those, those of us that are parents, it's common for us as Christian parents to think about praying for our children's future spouses. I pray that this morning our prayers would change. They would not be so short-sighted and narrow-minded, but that we would pray that you would grab a hold of our children's lives so fully that they would be so fully devoted to you that whether we ever see grandkids or not, what we really want to see is spiritual descendants. What we really want to see is your family grown through the making of disciples. Would you galvanize, would you launch us out as a church to do that, Lord Jesus? I pray this in your name. Amen.